Chicago. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm one of the hosts, Nathan, and I'm so happy to be joined today by Alita Miranda Wolf, who is the CEO and founder of Ethos and who has done so many more other things, but we'll talk about that later. But for now, Alita, I just want to say thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah. And these conversations get me really excited because what we're really going to be talking about today is people, about individuals and about, I, I mean, we're going to get into a lot of things, but at the heart of it is people. And I love that at the heart of what you do and sort of why you do what you do are people. And so to kind of get an idea of how that came about, I, I'd like to start at the beginning. And so if you could tell us, um, are you from Chicago or if you're not from Chicago, how did you end up here in our city? So I'm not really from anywhere, but I've lived in Chicago longer than anywhere else. So I moved 11 times before I was 16. And when I turned 16, I got an acceptance letter to the University of Chicago. And that's what brought me here to the city. So I lived in Hyde Park and I was a teenager who had been all over the place, but certainly not in a big metropolitan area. And I had had doubts about Chicago, truthfully, because I was coming from, at the time, South Florida. I was born in San Francisco. And when I thought about Chicago, I thought about what many people do, which is gray skies and cold weather. And frankly, I had a different conception of the city because when my parents lived here, they lived through perhaps one of the more fraught periods in the city's history when it comes to segregation, when it mm. comes to violence, when it comes to divestment in communities, not to say that that isn't happening today, but the picture that they presented of Chicago was very much that the entire city was an inner city and was sort of neglected by policymakers and by its overall government. And so when I came to Chicago, I was very, very surprised that this is not the city that I came into. I found that the City Beautiful movement in the 1800s meant that the architecture was something to behold. I had a lot of community exposure because I was in Hyde Park in Bronzeville. And so community organizations and community building was part of the fabric of those neighborhoods. And I had access to just about everything I wanted without having to drive, which is a big part of my story because I do not drive. <laughs> I'm <laughs> 30 and I still don't drive. And Chicago is one of the only places on earth where you can do anything you want to do without a car. So there were all of these advantages. But I think what ultimately drew me to Chicago and what's kept me here is it's the place where I've been able to build the most meaningful relationships especially relationships built on what matters to me. So to give you a sense, when I started at the University of Chicago, I moved into Blackstone House, which no longer exists. It was a little bit more outside of campus. And I was waiting in line for my mom to bring some of my things to move into my dorm room. And I met my husband and my best friend in that line. And it was the first time that I had felt anything close to belonging because I had always been in this place of feeling like an outsider. 
I really didn't belong anywhere that I was. And it wasn't just that I moved so often. I had a little bit of an identity crisis happening for me anywhere that I went. So I learned to speak English. Spanish is my first language in Alabama. And I spoke English with a very deeply Southern accent. And my mom, who is Cuban, was the only Hispanic person in our town. And the fact that she was Catholic, the fact that she wasn't from the U.S., people constantly mistook her for being Mexican and had a lot of preconceived notions about her. But then later on, when my parents divorced and I moved to South Florida, I just wasn't Hispanic enough. You know, I have light skin and light hair and light eyes. So I didn't have the look of what I was supposed to look like. And I spoke very proper Spanish because the Spanish I spoke was with my family or what I had been learning academically, not in sort of a group or a culture of people who were like me. And so there was just this sense of being an outsider there too. And so culturally, I didn't have this sense of connection. I certainly didn't have a connection to a physical place. And then there were all of these other conventions and identities that I didn't fit into. I grew up in a very traditional family. And being a woman, a woman-identified person, there were expectations around me getting married and being a mom and not having a career. And I was very ambitious from a young age. So when I came to Chicago, there was an opportunity for some reinvention. And what I found were people willing to embrace me and willing to accept some of the elements that I think make me who I am. And that weren't being talked about as much. So one thing that I emphasize is this idea of multiculturalism in particular is growing at the most rapid pace of just about any identity in the US. So 33 million Americans currently identify as multiracial, two or more races. And 10 years ago, that number was nowhere near close. That's one in 10 Americans. 28 million Americans who are Latin A, like myself, are the ones who make up that number. And in 2010, which is about when I started at college here, in 2010, that number was 3 million. So this idea of, one, recognizing that you are the sum of many different cultures, races, ethnicities, and groups was not being talked about. And it was whether you were white assumed, white adjacent, white passing or not. And then there was just this element of lack of exposure because of this pressure to assimilate and really become part of a dominant group. So Chicago became very meaningful to me because I was exposed to so many different kinds of people who were willing to name who they were. Mm-hmm. And that was actually a very new experience coming from more suburban and rural communities where that was simply not done. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because we're kind of opposites in that way a little bit because um, I am Mexican born, uh, but I came here to the States when I was very young, uh, was adopted by a Caucasian family who then had like three of their own kids. So it was me and five white people. <laughs> and uh, so I, I look, you know, obviously like I, I, I'm Mexican and I look that, but I 
really don't know much about the culture. I don't know the language. I don't know the food. Um, and so I feel like I feel like I've said those words that you said exactly at some point where it's, um, you know, you feel very different. And um, it's like people expect me to be a certain kind of Mexican that I'm just not. And because I just don't know. I grew up in central Illinois. Like I didn't know about Mexican culture and um, and there was only really one other family in town at that time that uh, could even teach me at all about what it was like to be Mexican. But um, having assimilated to U.S. culture and to white culture in the Midwest, I mean, it was it was such a natural thing for me to look and sound and act as white as possible. And so. Um, when you talk about coming to Chicago and sort of being able to live into being different, being who you are, or or having a different culture than than what people were maybe used to seeing in other places, do you remember about how that made you feel? Like, how did you feel about pe- seeing people who were all different types of nationalities and cultures and colors and and sort of interacting with that? It changed my view of myself. And I will say this, it was a slow process for me because I was grappling with a lot of preconceived notions of who I was supposed to be. So Mm -hmm. what kind of daughter, what kind of woman, when I think about my background and the environments that I grew up in, there were some elements of culture shock. So when I started at college, for example, I wore a crucifix. I'm Catholic a lot of Hispanic people are. Yeah. And I had folks telling me, wow, you must not be intelligent if you believe in God. And it was mm. so different. So, so, so different. And then I had this sort of period of questioning of, is everything about my cultural identity wrong? Because there would be some of that pushback. But at the same time, I was seeing other people and I started to see the way that they saw me, which was not the same as I had been seen before. And what I mean by that is, for example, I had never even been exposed to the term white assumed or white adjacent. The idea was I'm white and a lot of my family isn't. And I have privilege because of it. And I think about my grandparents, for example, who are both both Cuban, came from Cuba to Spain and then to the United States and had a life full of hardships as immigrants. And also were very worldly, very cultured, have probably one of the most fascinating stories. I talk about it. They ran down the mountain with Castro to liberate Cuba from American influence. They were diplomats for 10 years in the Cuban government, going all over the Eastern Bloc and China to spread the message of communism before becoming uh, conscientious objectors and dissenters really seeing the ways in which corruption had set into this communist ideal, how people didn't have access to the food and services that they needed. And then they were cut off completely to the point where, you know, to have food or shoes, it was all my grandmother's relationships with foreigners who she had taught to speak Spanish. And the only way that they got out of Cuba and went to Spain was because a Cuban Olympic athlete had come back from the Olympics a winner and wanted my great grandmother's house. And so the government took the house, gave it to this runner and sent my family 
on a plane to Spain in their tropical clothing in the middle of Spanish winter, where they lived in churches until they could get on their feet. And so very non-traditional. And at the same time, when I was growing up, my grandmother would buy me skin lighteners and she would tell me I was beautiful because I had blonde hair and blue eyes and light skin. And when she and my grandfather went to Austria on vacation, they said, well, everyone there is beautiful. They're just like Alita because (laughs) they're white with fair skin and blonde hair and blue eyes. And so a lot of what my self-worth was tied to was racialized and I hadn't fully seen that until I came to Chicago. I hadn't seen the way that those attitudes shaped my view of myself, but I also started to become more of an optimist. There was more possibility here. Mm -hmm. There was more possibility for community because I had grown up in a very isolated existence. My community was my family and that was it. And you weren't really to trust other people because they would hurt you they would betray you, they would say bad things about you. And this is all rooted in very real experiences, but I had inherited a lot of trauma. And it came down to being in this new environment and shaping my own experiences and understanding that the world that my family had lived in wasn't in existence anymore. And so if I was going to live in the world, I was gonna have to imagine what it looked like in the future not what it was in the past. And so it led to a lot of me opening up to what a different life might be. When I think about self-worth and value, um, I think one of the toughest things that goes along with that is being able to see yourself who you actually are. Uh, A lot of times other people can speak things into you that you can't see in yourself. They may be like, oh, you're a great writer. You're a great singer. You're a great... Uh, you're really creative in this way. And you're like, no, I'm not. And it's just harder to see in yourself things that you can see positively in other people. Uh, And it can be that way with the maybe constructive things as well. Um, But can you share about the process that you went through to be able to look at yourself and say, these are the things that I value that are really great. And these are the things that I maybe want to change or improve or work on to be the kind of person that I want to be. Because I think for me, I I think about those things. And I think my whole life, I've been told by society as a whole, what a a good person looks like, or what an acceptable person looks like. And I haven't matched that person many times. And as I'm growing into adulthood, and I'm looking at myself and trying to say, okay, who is Nathan? And what is the value of me? Uh, it, it's a long process that has taken a lot of work and uh, professional people to help with that. So is there, are there thoughts that you can share about that and sort of what helped you with that process and, and maybe things that can help other people? So I'm a huge proponent of acceptance behavioral therapy, and I can talk a little bit more about that, but I want to start with a turning point moment. So when I was in college, my third year, I lived in Hyde Park on 55th and Hyde Park Boulevard, and I was crossing the street, and I was super excited because I worked the entire time that I was in college, and I had been saving up money to get an iPad and iPad keyboard, and I thought Mm. it was just going to make my life so much easier because I had this big old clunky laptop that I was lugging to and from campus, and it didn't work super well, and this was going to be an option I could afford that I was excited about. 
So I was feeling truly happy and I had come out of a spell of depression with a lot of renewed hopefulness. I had made doctor's appointments and I had gotten to the bottom of what ended up being a saga of chronic health issues that I live with today. But there seemed to be a light at the end of the tunnel. There's this sense of when you get a diagnosis, okay, but now I know what I can do, or now I know why things are happening the way that they are, even if this is the way that life will be. And as I was running across the street, I got hit by a car. So I was hit by a car, flipped over the hood twice, landed on the ground, and I just could hear shrieking. And it was my mom because she was the one who had come to pick me up. And I know that a bystander came over to me when I was lying in the middle of the road and was asking me if I was okay. And I said, tell my mom I'm not dead. That was the first thing I thought about was how is she going to experience this? And the paramedics came and they cut off my clothes and I went to the hospital and I was there for five days. I had to have reconstructive surgery. I had to relearn how to walk. And I don't want to oversell it as inspiration porn because there was a lot I learned from that experience about exclusion and about specifically the need for disability justice. At the same time, it allowed for a level of individuation for me that was important. So I grew up in a pretty fatalistic family. And what that is, is if you are too happy, God will punish you. If you are too successful, other people will hurt you. You have to be private. You have to be closed off. You have to protect yourself. And so there had been elements of my personality, Nathan, that I had really suppressed, that I'm a pretty naturally cheerful person, I'm an optimist. I'm excitable. I like people. I've been described as sunny. And those were things that I had really pushed down because of expectations that had been put upon me. I had this accident and I had this moment where I decided that instead of seeing this as some kind of punishment, I was going to view all of the opportunity ahead of me. Because just like a negative externality, something out of your control that can completely shake your world negatively can happen, so can a positive one. And so I wanted to see the world in that way and I made choices as a result. So I decided to go back to school right after surgery instead of taking a three-month leave of absence. There were some internships I had applied for in... uh, actually public housing and um, social impact advocacy that weren't speaking to me anymore. And just to add on, when I let them know that I had a disability, they said, oh, it's going to be really hard for you to intern here because our building isn't accessible. So there was (laughs) that whole added layer that I had never even thought about. Yeah. And I decided I was going to just try something totally different, which got me into technology and startups. I took classes that I really wanted to take not just the ones I was supposed to. So I took creative nonfiction writing, which became extremely important for me in my life. And then I chose to see not the ways in which people looked down on me or criticized me because I did face quite a bit of that. I had a professor who didn't want to teach me because she said she didn't think that I would perform in my condition. I had a friend who didn't want to hang out with me because my injuries were disgusting to him. That was the word that he used, disgusting. 
And that was happening. But at the same time, my now husband, but boyfriend at the time, he brought a giant suitcase to my studio apartment and laid a bunch of blankets on the ground. And he would just sit up all night in case I needed medicine or water or needed help getting to the bathroom. And he just never left. We got married (laughs) two years (laughs) later. But, you know, there was this element of somebody there who really wanted to take care of me and support me or my best friend, Katina, same thing. The way that she was absolutely there for me, anything I needed help with or support with. And I started to think it's not that people are inherently bad or inherently want to hurt me. There are some structural problems that we have and there are some beliefs that we're holding on to in some of these cases that maybe I myself have held on to. You know, I had to do so much unpacking of my own biases against people with disabilities as a person with disability because I have internalized a lot of these ideas around being weak or fragile or unhealthy or less useful. And I've done things that are really not okay to hide that disability. But that turning point moment was part of this process of saying, what do I want my purpose to be? What kind of person do I want to be? And what do I value to your earlier question? And that ended up being really an eight-year process that's bringing me up until today. And I don't think that if that accident had not taken place, I would have gotten to this point as soon as I had. Because there was also a part of me that channeled that anger into being less people-pleasing because I was angry. I was angry at the hospital bills that I had to pay. I was angry at the people who rejected me. I was angry that I lived in a seven-story walk-up and I couldn't walk. You know, I was angry that I couldn't have an internship I wanted because I couldn't climb stairs. And what it made me do, what it channeled for me was well, how do I want things to be? Not how am I supposed to be because of what other people are telling me. There was a finally kind of a recognition of there is such a thing as creating environments and conditions for including people and our structures are not set up that way. And I wanted to change that. And, you know, I had started in that place because I had already been working on immigration rights for two years while I was in college. And that was a huge motivator and driver for me. But it was something outside of me that I felt related to and connected to because of my family and because of everything that they had experienced. But this was something that was mine. And I could say, well, I don't, I don't want to take this. I don't agree. I think I'm going to be an awesome student. I don't think that disability should get in the way of me doing this internship well. And so there was that sort of fire and drive. Now, one caveat that I always put in is this was not a miracle moment. So I have a number of chronic illnesses and I do have sustained physical injuries and mobility disability because of that accident. Chronic illnesses are separate. So I am a person living with mostly invisible disability. You can see some of my scars and whatnot, but usually not when I'm dressed in business casual. And I will say that that is the identity that it has taken the longest for me to accept because of the way my work cultures were set up. And I can tell you a great example uh, was 
when I was working in venture capital, I was the first woman ever hired. I was the only Hispanic person working in VC in the city of Chicago and one of 27 Latino women working in VC in the country. I was the youngest person in my role in my industry nationally. And I felt that I had to prove myself every single day. So I wasn't going to name that I was struggling with mobility or illness. I was afraid. I was being told how lucky I was all the time. On a good day, someone would call me a unicorn and say, well, you must be so special. But I had people when I was going up to speak on panels about investing say, whose daughter are you? Because that was the only way I could have this opportunity. And so I remember we were working on the strategy for the organization and I left the conference room to throw up in a trash can in our office wipe my face and then go back into the conference room and continue the thought (laughs) that I had just been stating. And my boss looked at me and was like, are you okay? And I was like, you know what? If I had to take a break every time I threw up, I would never get anything done. And I just made light of it instead of saying, why do I have to go back to this meeting when clearly I am not doing well right now? Uh, Another time I had a standing desk and I have vertigo. That's one of the impacts of my accident. Mm. And I also experienced chronic migraine. And so somebody had handed me a pill and I was at the point where like, I just couldn't see anything because of how bad this migraine was. And it was an excedrin. So if you know anything about vertigo, you know, you cannot have caffeine because caffeine will set off a vertigo attack. And there's a lot of caffeine and excedrin. So yeah. the entire world started spinning and I fell over. I crawled under my standing desk, grabbed my laptop, and kept working. And my two interns at the time printed out the presentation they were supposed to give to me and laid it out on the floor and presented to me under my desk. And my boss was like, oh, Alita, she's so kooky. And again, I'm thinking, this is the behavior of somebody (laughs) living in a world that is not supportive of disability by any stretch of the imagination. Like this isn't a kooky sitcom scenario. This is a very dark statement about what our work expects from us. So while I started to have this revelation and that turning point moment was a big deal for me, you know, you mentioned Nathan, that it's been a journey and a process for you and that you've worked with professionals. Same. And it's been on different parts of my identity. And the last thing I'll say on this is I would say because I am a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging professional, I grapple with my racial identity and my gender identity on a regular basis. Whenever I introduce myself, I'll say my name is Alina Miranda Wolf, and I identify as a white-assumed Hispanic cisgender woman with an invisible disability who is a first-generation immigrant and survivor of gender-based violence. And I do believe that those identities most shape who I am. There are identities I don't name. So one of our facilitators on our team, Lore, talks about being a fat, non-binary person. And I have experienced so much shame and so much rejection and so much exclusion for my weight and my body type and my body size. And I think about that in relationship to disability because I've experienced so much shame and judgment and rejection because of what my body is supposed to do or not supposed to do. And I see that it is all very intersectional 
with my gender identity, but I also see it as intersectional with my cultural identity. Because if you know anything about Hispanic culture, you know sort of the myth of the Hispanic woman and that she is capable of taking care of everyone else's needs and that her own needs do not get met. Mm -hmm. And so anytime that I have been in situations where, for example, my husband does all the cooking, I feel like a failure on multiple counts. And that is going to take a long time in terms of deprogramming, but it is also every model that I had seen for most of my life. Yeah, and kind of along those same lines, I wonder, um, because I don't don't have invisibility disabilities and but there are parts about me that people don't know all the time things that you can't necessarily see right away that it's like okay um you know people may not know that you would identify with this specific um, part of you just by looking at you do you feel like it's harder for people to understand disability or um let's say sexual orientation, you you know, you may not be able to tell just by looking at someone. Some people say maybe you can, whatever, but for things that aren't necessarily like, oh, I can tell that you're, you know, this culture, or I can tell that you're this ethnicity or, you know, those things where it's like the invisible things. Are Are those hard for people to understand? And if they are, is it harder for people to understand what effect that has on you or how you see the world? Absolutely. One of the challenges that I think we have as human beings is that we naturally categorize people. Mm-hmm. And what's the easiest way to categorize someone? By what you see, by their physical yeah. diversity. And there are real disadvantages to that. Having visible difference can lead to much more overt discrimination, harassment, mistreatments, We see that in so many different cases. And there is this challenge with invisible identity of feeling especially like an outsider because you can pass. And passing is simply when you show up and you act as if you're part of the dominant group. Or you can cover. You can take some of those elements of your physical identity and downplay them, cover them up so that you can more assimilate to that dominant group but you don't identify with them. You know that you don't sit at that table with them. You know that the rules that they make are not made for you, but you can't go to the non-dominant group a lot of the time because the sense is, well, we have it worse than you do. And you can choose whether people know or not. My, one of my closest friends is asexual and she has struggled because in the dominant group, she'll hear things like, well, you just haven't found the right person yet. But in the queer community where she sought refuge, it's stop appropriating our suffering and our trauma and our identity. Your thing isn't real. You don't belong here. We don't want you. And so there's this element of not really having a place to go. And it's become really important to me in my research on belonging because increasingly identities are invisible as we become more multicultural, as the idea of a gender spectrum is embraced, as we 
think about changes in language and speech pattern and how people express themselves. And what comes up for me all the time, I'm paraphrasing this, but one of my favorite authors in the world is Alyssa Wachetta. And she came out with a book last year called White Magic, which is a series of personal essays. She identifies as indigenous. She's a member of the Cowlitz people. And she's white passing. So if you knew that she was indigenous, you might say she looks indigenous. But if you didn't know she was indigenous, you would say that she was white. And the thing about her is she's literally enrolled in the Cowlitz tribe. This is her culture. This is her identity. It shapes who she is. And people will tell her that she's white. And what she writes in this book in, in one way or another is, they could not kill me, so they made me invisible. And that's the experience of many indigenous people. That's what assimilation does. It forces you to become part of this larger group so that you lose the parts of yourself that in many ways make you who you are. And it's a way of reinforcing existing power structures. And it's very psychologically damaging, especially because you are saying, I know this to be true about myself. This is how I see myself. And the people around you are telling you that that is not true. That level of dissonance is not, it's definitely not psychologically safe, but how is that going to impact self-conception or self-image? I mean, the example that I use all the time with that is when you ask a question like, what are you? Which is still asked all the time. You are essentially turning that person into an object. Why isn't the question, who are you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a great point. And it's, it's interesting because I get, I get that question or, or some form of that, even within Mexicans, because, um, as I said, you know, I was born there, but I was raised here in the States. And so when I'll talk to another Mexican, they'll often start talking to me in Spanish. And I'm like, oops, sorry, don't know Spanish, can't speak it. Like, and they're like, why? And so we go down this whole story of like how I was adopted, my parents, you know, because I'm always like, because my parents didn't speak it in the house. And like, well, why didn't your parents speak it? And I was like, I don't even know you, do I really? But, uh, but, but it, it's interesting because it's like even within some of these groups, like you were mentioning the LGBTQIA plus group is can be the same way. You know, I, I identify as gay and even in the LGBTQIA plus group, so many times I feel like I don't fit in anywhere within that group. And so it's not, it's not exclusive to cisgender, white, you know, English speaking, U.S. born people. But I think that we have experienced that in so many ways that it has become a normal part of what we do to try and understand people within this box and then to figure out where we are in terms of where they are because of whatever um, identities that we feel like are the most important, whether it's asking them about sexuality or culture, race, you know, whatever those are, religion, that we feel like um, will either make us feel better about ourselves or help us to understand some piece of them a little more. It reminds me always of Conflict is Not Abuse by Sarah Shulman, which is one of my favorite texts, P 
period anywhere. It's having a moment now, but it was written seven years ago, maybe Mm. more. And one of the things that she looks at is this idea of conflating conflict and abuse. Instead of saying, we're in dialogue, we're in discussion, saying, you are my abuser, and I will exile or ostracize you if you disagree with me. And it's a very complex argument, very nuanced argument, but there is a chapter that has stayed with me because I don't like to talk about oppression Olympics. I prefer to use a term called comparative grief, which is our there's not enough room in this world for our grief. So we must compete for who is allowed to grieve, uh, which is very dark. And again, speaks more to the problems within our social structures than with ourselves. But one of the things that she, as a member of the queer community, lands on is that we internalize the ways in which we have been abused and we produce that abuse ourselves. So if you look at the queer community, for example, many of the members of the queer community have been disowned and rejected and shunned. So what is the relationship between having been shunned and the fact that that community has a history of canceling other members of that community, literally shunning them, right? It's reproducing those behaviors that have been experienced. And so what it comes down to is what mechanisms and what community tools do we have to process through trauma and grief and abuse and conflict so that we can move forward in different ways. And that is, I think, the hardest part of this overall DEIB project. And when I talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, I talk about the fact that it is really futuristic work. Because if we use simply the tools that we have today, It's as Audre Lorde says, you know, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. A lot of the challenges that I experience with DEIB in terms of the variety of different communities that interact is that we're still operating on white supremacy principles, including scarcity mindset, which if you really believe that only one group can get resources, there's no possibility of coalition of coming together, of collective healing, and then transformation. And so there has to be a reframing and a different way of doing things. And in order to get there, it's this really challenging balance of both structural change and individual self-reflection, because you have to be able to identify the ways in which that, you know, you have been reprogrammed by the system or society that you're part of. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago, as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solutions Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. 
All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceedings.